Oh man, today you all are to be thanked and appreciated because without you, we couldn't have saved daylight. You know that? I'm like, daylight savings? We're rescuing daylight now? This is the craziest thing. And here's the weird part, and it's because I had a firsthand experience, and I'll get to that in just a second, but I was thinking about how this whole shift is weirdest for the people who are working during the shift, right? Like, my wife's a night shift nurse at Evergreen, right? So when it gets to 2 o'clock, one time of the year, it bounces back to 1 o'clock for her somehow in weird quantum space, or it jumps ahead to 3 o'clock out of nowhere, and it's super weird. So here's how it intersects with my day. On Sunday mornings, I get up super, super early, and I go into the hub early, and I kind of look over my notes and kind of collect my thoughts and everything else. And so I'm pulling up at 3-something-ish in the morning, the bar closes at two, but two jumps to three, and so I'm intersecting with everybody leaving the bar as I'm coming into the hub. And it was the weirdest thing, like five dudes were like, yeah, bro, what's up? And I'm like, I'm coming to get ready for church. So, um, you know, it's just a super, I'm like, this is a strange dynamic, this whole crossover thing. So anyway, I'm like, daylight savings, thank you for not really saving daylight in any way, but all right, we got it anyway. So not here for that, not here to just listen to the weird stuff that goes in Matt's brain. You are here because we are in a current series. We've titled this Divided We Stand. And the heart behind this is how we are divided out to be a different kind of people to bless the people around us. And so we're looking at first and second and third John, right? And we've learned all kinds of stuff just in the initial kind of four weeks of the series. But today is a pop quiz, all right? And the pop quiz is for everybody in the room. And don't worry, you didn't even have to study for this pop quiz. You didn't have to be ready for it. This is an answer from your gut, all right? Right? So I'm going to ask you kind of a series of questions, or maybe I'm going to give you more like statements. And I want you to think about the one word that best captures like the, the, the way those statements are, are made. So they're going to be phrases, and they're going to be like pillar to post phrases. And it's like, without the presence of whatever word you come up with is the difference between these two extremes. Now, I know that sounds a little ominous and weird and everything else. You'll get it here as we start in a second. You don't have to say these out loud. You just think your word to yourself. And I'm going to take one word off the table, which is you can't use the word Jesus, okay? Because that's a cheat. That's a Sunday school answer. And now it's going to be kind of true. I'm not going to take away from that. But I want you to pick that one word that the presence or absence of that one word is the difference. So for example, if I said it's a matter of life or death, what is that one word that is the difference between life and death? Or it's the difference between a world in darkness and a world illuminated by the light. What is that one word that makes all the difference? The one word between truth and error. What's that one word? Maybe for some of you, you said, well, it's the gospel. That's the one word. Or faith is the one word. Or morality is the one word. Or law is the one word. That's the difference between life and death, darkness and light, truth and error itself. I'm curious, how many, and you can raise your hand if you want, thought the word love. Love is the difference. Pretty good. That's awesome. John would be very, very proud of you. The writer of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, that's exactly where he centers his focus, especially in 1 John, this blog that he's written to the church throughout the ages. 
Because for John, love is the central theme. Now for him, Jesus is love, Jesus is God, that all comes together, but love really matters. And today we're gonna enter into the first of three very unique sections of 1 John where he highlights this. Today, he's going to talk about how love is a matter of light versus darkness. Then in chapter three, he's gonna say love is a matter of life and death. And then in chapter four, he's gonna say love is a matter of truth and error itself. And so with this, I, I think it's important for us to wrestle with the fact that the real test of our faith and our faithfulness, this idea of Christian expression and living, it's not rooted in how much we go to church, how much we study our scriptures, how many Bible studies we're a part of, or how many Christian artists we like to listen to, or how many culture wars we want to engage in. That's not the ultimate test for John, and I think for John, because that's not the ultimate test for Jesus, it's really how we are mobilized to and moved to love as God loves and Jesus loves us. That's the core of the whole idea. Now, in this, um, I think what is true is that kind of where John centers some of this and how it has its expression, I, I think it's easier in some cultures and it's more difficult. Americans, since we talk a lot about rights and I have my rights and don't tread on my rights and we have religious rights and all kinds of different rights, but John's like, man, I don't know anything about rights, but I know a lot about responsibilities. And that's very different than standing your rights. It's being responsible to a bigger vision than yourself. As Americans, we talk a lot about liberty, but John's going to talk a lot about love. And see, the, the difference between these worlds is that kind of in our American psyche, we can become more kind of self-interested, selfish, self-preserving, it's not about the collective us. It's about kind of, again, my American dream, my privilege, my whatever I have. But for John, he's like, no, the thing we're trying to build, the thing we're trying to emphasize here is a selflessness, is a sacrificial spirit for the greater good, even if it's at the cost of myself. And so John's words and his message, I think they, they will uniquely challenge our modern American sensibilities. And I think that's good. I really do. I think it's tender. I think it might sting at times to wrestle with these things. But I think it's good because it's the heart of God and it's the message of Jesus and it's the essence of how the good news of Jesus changes the world, all of which we're going to dig into today. And so with all of that said, I want to remind you we have an app. There's notes that you can follow along with, blanks that you can fill in, good reminders. All the passages are in there. Uh, so that you can have these at your disposal. You can go back over them at other times or whatever else. But it also just helps kind of to center our thinking, follow along as we go. And so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning, get us ready for what we have today, and we're going to dive right in, and we're going to be moving fast. So if you would join me, that would be awesome. Jesus, man, we need to sense your love to motivate us to the level of love that we see your friend John is talking about. And there's nothing easy about this. There's nothing simplistic about this. Uh, it, it's, it is altogether otherworldly to have this love manifest in the world, but we know it's the only thing that will change the world as well. And so we're asking you to uh, dig deep in us 
to remove the things that maybe get in the way of our ability to love well and implant into us a passion and a sense of that which it is uh, not only you're calling us to, but boy, what you've given us the privilege to do. May we love, love. May we love to love as you love. May we be willing to set ourselves to the side for the greater good of seeing your love shed abroad in the world. So teach us, Jesus, to be like you, think like you, and love like you. We thank you and we praise you in your good and kind name. Amen. All right, so uh, last week we noted how Jesus came into the world to deal with our problem of sin, right? Sin is the missing of the mark. It was Matt's sad Nerf gun that couldn't hit anything on the target right. And I had people like, dude, your Nerf gun is terrible by design, right? So just couldn't hit the target, and that's our sin problem. But Jesus comes into the world and says, listen, you missed the target. That's true. You're imperfect and incomplete. It's a part of the human condition. But I'm stepping in and I'm changing you so that you can be a different kind of people and you can do different kinds of things. And from that, you can obey what God commands. And in doing that, you can represent me to the world. And so where we closed last week was in verse 6 of chapter 2 with this catch-all phrase that John throws out there. The simple but not easy-to-accomplish idea, which was those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Sure. Right? Like, you look at that. How simple, right? How basic, how easy, easy piece. Just, just do like Jesus did, and you'll be fine. See, this is why we're still all going to miss the mark. Because Jesus was perfect. God in human form never made a mistake, loved perfectly, lived perfectly, did perfectly, responded perfectly, act perfectly. We're never going to master that. Not in this life, not in any conceivable way. So we miss the mark. But nonetheless, for us, what we want to do is say, what I see in Jesus, his disposition, his actions, his demeanor— I want to sift that, and I want to understand that so I can imitate that and mimic that and do that to the world around me. This is why I'm such a big fan of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those gospel accounts, those four accounts, man, they dissect the life of Jesus. And we can look through that, and we can learn from that, and we can start scribbling the notes, and we can start figuring out, man, how do I take that and, and, and onboard that into my life in such a way that I, I can export that to the world around me and to the people around me? Like, I want to be more of that. Like, that's the heart we are to have. And so John is thinking about this, and John wants us to focus on this, and, and John wants to get, I think, to the core of what it then looks like to really live as Jesus lived. And so we go into verse 7, immediately after he makes this mission statement of we should live like Jesus, and he says, Dear friends, he says, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one that you've had from the very beginning, yet it's also new. John makes me laugh every time I read him, because it reminds me again of Jeff Goldblum. Yes, 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 it's a new command. It's a new command, but it's an old command. It's old and new and old and new, and life finds a way, you know? And, like, that's just the way he's just aimlessly wandering, it feels at times. But he's getting to something core, right? And, and it's that exploration that we want to look at. And if you're taking notes with us this morning, we see it starts with an old but new priority. In other words, it's not new, but it takes on a new dimension as things unfold. So what is the old commandment that is somehow new? Well, he says this old commandment is to love one another. 
And it's the same message you heard before, and yet it's also altogether kind of new. Now, in this, I want to remind us of something we kind of went into a couple of weeks ago. Uh, John is relying heavily on his Hebrew Bible. He's a good Jewish boy, has a good Jewish Bible. That's the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's this book of Leviticus, and it throws us all off, and we don't understand it because we get lost in all of the laws. But the heart of Leviticus is to love your neighbor. Right? I always want to drive that, that once you get out of all the blades of grass and you look at the lawn of the Leviticus, it's how do you love your neighbor well? So there's all the laws that steer toward that. And we can look at all of those laws and be confused by those and don't understand them, but for their day, they understood that all of that was related to loving your neighbor well. It's no different than like in 3,000 years. There's going to be this team of archaeologists, and they're going to dig through the layers of what was Seattle at one time. And they're going to come across weird laws like, they had to stand six feet apart. Why did they have to stand six feet apart? Why not five or why not seven? Why six? That's a they couldn't go to Safeway without a mask? What was that law all about? Like, I'd be confused. But to our culture, we understand what all those rules were about. With all of the, they served a function to love our neighbors in a difficult time. Leviticus is the same way. We don't understand all the laws, but we understand the core of Leviticus. To love your neighbor well. But sometimes we don't love our neighbor well, and so we need this day of atonement in the book of Leviticus. Atonement means, again, at one minute. It's joining in union with God and in union with our fellow Israelites in that period. And to make that kind of come together, that at one minute, you had these two goats. One goat, we took the sins of the people, put it on the goat, and that goat was sent into the wilderness. And then the other goat was slain so that its life essence and its blood symbolically could be kind of applied to the people. So new life for the people as their unloving sins were taken away and new life was infused so they could love well again and have one minute in the community. That's the old command, right? Ancient, way back at the start of the Hebrew law. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus is a newer and better atonement. And he's a newer and better scapegoat. And he's a newer and better sacrifice who gives newer and better life to the community of faith so it can love well its neighbor, insider and outsider alike. All of that kind of comes together. So it's old, but it's altogether new because of what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus desires of us in light of what he's done for us. But here's what I really dig about what John's kind of getting to with some of this too. In this instance, it's not as though the command to love has come from on high, from the mountain to the people. But rather, this commandment is, is where God says, now I'm going to come down among the people. I'm not just sending a messenger down the mountain. I am coming from heaven. I'm coming into the earth. I'm going to show them how to love. I'm going to spell it out for them. I'm going to display it in all its variety and form and beauty and sacrifice and selflessness and encouragement and care and gentleness and compassion and grace. Like God himself says, I needed to show them how to do it. They don't do memos well. So I will come and I will display and I will model and I will give them this dynamic and play. In fact, it's the second point in your notes. It's the old but new example. John says, man, here's the old but new command. Love one another. He says, because Jesus, Jesus lived the truth of this commandment. He did it. He's the one that, that displayed it. And again, I dig this because the same God who billowed on Mount Sinai, 
The same God who told Moses to give this set of exhaustive codes as an apparatus to love God and love neighbor well, that same God, this ancient of days, descends, comes into the world. The God who is love, uh, by definition, says, and here's how you do it. Let me show you how it's done. And, and he doesn't come as like this high and mighty educator. No, he comes as this lowly servant who's washing feet and caring for people and making these types of investments. He is the example the world needed to see. That's why we should sift Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to go, oh, that's what love looks like in action. That's how it's executed in our lives amidst one another. I mean, think about it. He loved, he loved the sinner. He loved the extortioner who his own people said, that's a traitor. And Jesus like, no, oh, man, I, I love that traitor. Jesus loved the sex worker and the adulterer. There was a rich dude that came to Jesus and said, I wanted to follow you, Jesus, but the cost is too high. And he walks away, but it says Jesus loved that man as he walked away still. Jesus loved the Samaritan woman who was multiple times divorced, now just living with a guy, and, and she was massively changed by his love for her because Jesus loved well. He loved Peter the impetuous, Thomas the doubter. He even loved Judas the traitor. That's a love leader for him, so he inflicted him. And he loved a dude named John. He had a brother, and they were the sons of thunder. Right? It tells you something about their personality type. We, we don't want to hear your message. We don't want to be a part of being difficult, sometimes bombastic, John. You in the Gospel of Luke, there's this time where Jesus goes to the Samaritan, th like thug, thug, you know? And Jesus is like, what are you doing, man? And he loves that kind of aggressive, violent guy still. There was this night that Jesus needed John to be by his side praying, and John falls asleep, and Jesus still loved John. And then after a couple hours, John actually just runs away from Jesus in his moment of greatest need when Jesus gets arrested. And Jesus still loves John so much so that John is called the beloved disciple of Jesus. So when John writes this, don't be like, oh, there's Holy Scripture that he says uh, Jesus fulfilled this command. No, this is a guy that's like, dude, I lived it. I saw it. I experienced it. I did terrible things. I let him down a ton. I was reckless in all kinds of ways. And he still loved me, called me beloved of his. He fulfilled this command. I've experienced it. I know the essence of this very thing. It's not just a point of emphasis for a theological idea. It's like, man, no. I, I've been touched by this. His love shaped the course of my life. And it shape me into a better me because of what he has done in me. See, that's profound. And so if we pull all of this together, I start back in verse 7 and read it through. He says, Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one that you've had from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it's also new because Jesus lived the truth of this commandment and you also are living it for the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. Now I wanted to kind of get the big chunk of that so you can see the layers that are involved, right? First, that idea of you. Now in one sense, you could be kind of plural, but it's also very individualistic. Every individual has to be living out this love for it to kind of work. 
And so every individual is owning the love of Jesus and what it means to love like Jesus so that when they come together, they can love one another. And that way they're mimicking what they see in Christ. But in doing this then, it has this implication for the world. It drives out the darkness and it introduces to the world what it so desperately needs, which is the light. And the light comes through love. In other words, what it means is when we as individuals grab a hold of this and we do this collectively, it reveals an old but new purpose, which is number three in your, your notes. The old but new purpose. And to unpack this, I want to unpack uh, this idea of why love is key. Right? Not just nice or good or polite or proper or right or whatever else. Why it's key. And to do this, I want to go back to, again, the old model, and then from that to see how it then builds in to the new model. So we go back again to Leviticus and to Numbers, and we've done both of these books as a church. And so again, I'm going to crush them together really quick for you to kind of remind you of what God had intended. Uh, so God comes to dwell with a certain kind of people. He comes to Abraham, he's like, dude, I'm making a promise to you. I'm going to use you to change the world. Right? So I'm coming to you, and I'm starting something with you, and I'm going to dwell with you in such a way that then your ancestors kind of gather around this idea, and you're altogether different than everything else in the world. And so when you see the book of Leviticus, it talks about then, okay, Israel, we want you to be holy. And holy means uncommon. And uncommon to everybody else that's around you. So the Egyptians and the Assyrians and, you know, the Canaanites and everybody else. Like, I want you to be different. I want you to be uncommon. And their uncommonness is love. That's the fundamental thing. The love of neighbor is radical in that region. Altogether crazy. And so God's like, that's how we do this. We want you to love. And you love your neighbor well, you become a community of love, and from that, we're going to take that love and we're going to deposit it into the world, and that's what will change the nations and bless everybody. So then we jump into numbers, and we see the structure of the camp is literally designed to kind of showcase the idea. So God dwells at the center of the camp, right? There's the Ark of the Covenant, there's the tabernacle, and God's presence is there. The heart of God resides there, and everybody orients around that. So you have the 12 tribes, and they fan out like a cross in the desert, Right? And, and so you start to see these, these spheres of influence. So God is at the center sphere. He dictates the tone of the camp in love. And then from that, there's this community that's uncommon and holy by way of loving their neighbors. They love radically. But the purpose of that is that they wouldn't just stay clustered together forever, but God wants to use Israel to bless the nations, to be a light to the Gentiles. That was their calling. Right? So they would spread this idea of love. Now here's the reality. Israel failed in that calling. They did not do that. Instead of loving their neighbors, they hated their neighbors, resented their neighbors, fought their neighbors. And even when Jesus shows up and he tries to recalibrate them, they're like, no, man, we hate the Romans. We hate, you know, the, the Samaritans. We hate everybody. We don't love everybody. We're not going to love everybody. We want to go to war to get what we want, our rights, our privilege, our desires, not what you want, what we want. That was the whole problem. But Jesus, nonetheless, is rebooting the plan. But it's new. And this time, it's not going to be that God will dwell in a tent or in a temple. But, but now he will dwell in the individual. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. He's like, man, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, right? So, so now you are the, in, the place where God inhabits. You're the center in that sense as the individual. 
And now God is going to use all of these people to come together to not simply be a nation, but to be a spiritual people. But the mission's still the same, to go out and touch the world, to love the world, to change the world, to bring light to the darkness. That's the plan. And so it's old but new. So in this newness then, the first thing we want to understand for the individual believer is that love displays new life in the individual. Right? The, the way that we know we have true life in us from God is that we love. That's the proof of the life of God in us. In fact, John will say this in his next chapter, chapter 3. He says, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. Right? So we're being motivated by love. We're moved by love. This proves that we have this connection with, with God that we didn't have before. It's the thing that oozes from us according to what God has designed because he's taken up residence in us. That's kind of the first stage or step that we understand. But then as individuals, we come together in community. And that's the next stage, that next kind of sphere of reality. Love demonstrates the unique feature of Christian community. Like, this is what we're to be known by and for. Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. He says, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Which I'm going to pause there for just a second. Because when we go, well, how far do we go? How much should we love one another? How much should I stretch out for the sake of those around me? We just simply go, well, how much do I sense Jesus did that for me? Because whatever I sense he did for me is what I'm supposed to do. As I have loved you, you love one another. All right, so we go, well, he, he, he sacrificed everything. He gave everything in love. It's like, okay, that's, that gives us the bar that we're shooting for. Now we're going to be imperfect. We're going to miss the mark. But we know what we're striving for here. But then he goes a step further, and he says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Our rules won't prove it. Our rituals won't prove it. Our religion won't prove it. Our authentic, selfless love, that is a change agent for the world and the thing that the world most needs to see. And that is what is going to get their attention and can get their attention because of this next point. Love displaces societal hate with the light of kingdom-rooted love. This is a little bit of a weird one. I want to help us understand I say kingdom-rooted love. There's all kinds of talk about love in the world. There is, right? Love wins, love is love. We hear a lot about love in all kinds of different ways, right? As lowly as I love that car to as high as I love my wife. Like, everything in between. There's all kinds of stuff. But we're talking about kingdom-rooted love. And I think kingdom-rooted love is what we read out of 1 Corinthians this morning, right? That's the definition of kingdom-rooted love. Kingdom-rooted love is what we see in the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Plain, and the life of Jesus, and what he does in the world, and what he did for us. That is the idea of love. And so when we love in that way, then, then we hit the world around us and we actually drive out the hate that is there because we're resisting hate with love. In fact, Paul kind of talks about this in Titus chapter 3. He says, Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. He says our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. The, the ESV, which I really, really like, says uh, we were hated and being hated. Like, this is what we were good at before Christ stepped into our lives. 
He says, but when God our Savior revealed his kindness and his love, he saved us. Notice it's kindness and love that's dispelling hate and envy and all these things. That's a good lesson for us. Kindness and love is like honey to vinegar in this world. And he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, and he gave us what? New birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. John talks about new life too, right? And so what we're seeing here is in his love and kindness, he gives us new life for the purpose of what? Living out that new life in love. That we drive out the hate of our world in love. That we display toward others that which God has displayed to us. Kindness and love. I think it's really, really beautiful. It's really, really hard, but it's really, really beautiful. But see, here's the thing about this too. Um, when Paul thinks about hate in this passage in Titus, we, we could go to all kinds of places what we think hate is, for example. But he grounds the problem of hate in some things that are really practical. In fact, if we go back to the beginning of Titus chapter 3, verse 1, it starts off this way. Remind the believers to submit to government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone. They must not quarrel. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Why? Because once we too were foolish and disobedient, and we hated each other. Notice that he ties this idea of hating one another to the stuff of verses 1 and 2. It's like hate looks like this. When you slander these people, when you don't obey those people, when you stand opposed to these things, he's like, that's hate in action. That's what the world does. And we used to do that, but we don't do that any longer because we have new life. A new life reveals itself in radical love. And so this new life is designed to help us love ourselves well in some ways, which I know sounds weird and a little taboo, like, hey, am I allowed to love myself? Well, the, the command to love your neighbor is what? To love your neighbor as your self. See, once you have this new life in Christ and you realize how valued you are in his sight and how deeply loved you are by him, it gives you a better grounding of how you have then a sense of love in oneself. I don't mean that selfishly. You understand you bear his image. You have value for him. And so with that, you're grounded in something healthier. And from that, then you can love your neighbor, your believing neighbor, your Christian fellow Jesus-following neighbor really, really well. But you can also love the outsider well, the neighbor who maybe is not a believer, and you can even love your enemy well. And you do this not because, again, it's nice or good, obedient or godly or whatever. Those are true. But we do this because this is the only thing that will bring change to the world. Like, we have to believe that. That love is the only thing that can drive out the darkness and bring forth the light. This is why, again, John said, Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, for the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. See, he's using this as a, a, a universal extreme. He's like, but that's the thing that makes the difference. That's the thing you want to practice. If you really want to change the world, if you're really worried about where things are going in society, on school boards, in the morals of the culture, he's like, man, you better get on your big boy pants to love because that's the only thing that's going to do it because that's the only thing that brings transformation. And you see this in like Matthew chapter 4. 
It, it, it talks about how Jesus comes to preach the gospel, and he comes into this region where the shadow of death had been everywhere, but now the light is dawning. And immediately goes into the Sermon on the Mount after that. Like, hey man, then here's how we do it. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about love and action. Love and action. That's always going to be the key. See, what it means for us in here is if we want to bring a net positive out in our world, we really have to just, just strive and, and get good at loving one another well. Right? We have to be a loving community of faith if we're to see faith brought to a community in love. If we can't be that in our space, right, then, then we don't give much for the world to go, man, that's something different, and, and I want that uniqueness. Now, again, we're not going to do this perfectly all the time. I get it, but again, it should be the thing we strive for. Thus, John closes with an old but new expectation. After talking about how the display of light dispels the darkness of our world, he says, if anyone claims, I'm living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Now, I want to be clear. Some people go, see, that's the proof you're not saved. But listen to what John said. If anyone claims, I'm living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, he doesn't say you're not a believer anymore. He says, if you hate your fellow believer, you're exercising a dark attitude. It doesn't mean you're not necessarily saved or whatever. He's saying you're not exercising what we're meant to exercise, which is light and love and truth and having those things in action. Now, I know my temptation in this is to go, well, but I don't hate anybody. I'm not a hateful person, all right? And I don't know if many people would say they hate people or hate groups or whatever else. There's a few, but for the most part, we go, nah, hate's too strong. But what I did this week is I thought, okay, I should grab a thesaurus. Well, I shouldn't grab it. I should just type in, because who actually owns one anymore? Um, but just type in hate. What comes up? What are the synonyms? Well, animosity antagonism, hostility, resentment, aversion, grievance, gripe, spite, ill will, uh, just being irritated or an irritant. And there's another 122 words on top of that. Like when I started looking at that, I'm like, oh man, I'd like to, to, to cloak my hate in lesser words. Paul even did the same thing in the Titus passage. He's like, we used to hate. Well, what did that hate look like? Well, it looked like slander and quarreling and envy. It looked like it wasn't being humble. It wasn't being gentle. It wasn't being supportive of officials and leaders. It was foolish and disobedient. All of that is hate. And if you look at the antonym of hate, well, then it's things like friendship. Hate, sympathy, unkindness, love. Right? I looked at all this, and, and I got it in the Christian expression, love, did this word. But it could just be a word that we, we esteem it, we think about it, we claim it, celebrate it. Um, we need to hate. Because I think love in here, it, it's like a greenhouse. Right? Or, or like a garden or, you know, just a, a space where it's meant to grow healthy and strong and the roots go deep so that we can then transplant it out into our world. And they can go, oh, that's what it actually looks like. That's what an otherworldly love in this world is meant to feel like. See, that's our mission. But anyone who loves a fellow believer, is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. I, I like how he's like, man, if you say this, but you don't do it, it's kind of living in darkness, but what real love would look like among one another is that I'm really caring for you and I don't want to cause you to stumble. I like how he buckles love and light and stumble-free living all together, right? 
Because part of this idea of love is saying, man, I don't want to do anything that causes anyone to say, you know what, Christianity is bunk, it doesn't count, I was in it, but it's not real, there's not real love in there, it's just more rules, more laws, more stuff, more judgment, I'm done, I'm out, I'm split, and he's like, man, don't do anything that causes a person to stumble. Stumbling is not, hey, I'm offended at you, stumbling is, I'm leaving the faith because it's not real, because you don't model it, you, you don't live this thing, like, we don't ever want to do that. Real love says, I will, I will sacrifice myself for the good of those around me, because that's love in action, because that's what Jesus has done. For us, that is the heart. John says, but anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in the darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. I know at this point I'm a broken record, but again, it's not what we claim or attest to or profess. It's what we do. It's how we act, and it's the ways that we love. That's what really matters. Now, as I wrap this up, I, I, I come with two closing thoughts. These are just like things where I was thinking about it this week and, and why I think this matters so much. And maybe why it matters even our climate today. And the first is that idea of causing someone to stumble. And I think about, maybe if you listen to the news or read articles or whatever, you hear about these groups, maybe you've heard the word, uh, those who have deconstructed. Or you've heard about the nuns. They just check none on the box of religious affiliation. Or there's another one, it's called the duns. They're just done with the church. They're done with Christians. They're done with Christianity. Doesn't mean they're done with Jesus or even faith but they're just done with organized religion. And, and some of those people, they, they leave for academic reasons or intellectual reasons, philosophical reasons, but others, when you quiz them and talk with them, you find out that they go, you know what, I got stung there, I got hurt there, I got ground up there, I got tired of all of the privilege to speak, I got tired of how Jesus looks like this, but they didn't want to look like this and they look like that, and I said, forget it, man, I'm finished with that. And, and I, I look at John's words and I go, man, um, we must collectively do better. Now, as I've said to us as a church, man, I actually think you guys are awesome. I think you love so well. This, in part, is like we're paddling upstream against a lot of stereotyping, but stereotyping that has some, some evidence behind it, right? Where people are like, man, I need to see something different out of the Christians because when I look around, I, I see more of the same. And so it's incumbent on us to love internally well so that others don't go, man, they don't love, Christians don't love, I'm bouncing. I'm gonna go find people who love better and more. Right? The other, though, is this language of light and darkness as it relates to society, right? Because um, here's what I'll, I'll personally say after all of my adult life being in, in kind of the evangelical setting is I think there is a real battle between light and darkness. I do, I absolutely do. But I think sometimes we've been fighting it wrong, right? We, we've been taking it at one angle and we're missing the actual angle that works. And so take any hot topic today, you pick it, right? So wokeness or guns or LGBTQ issues or uh, how we should do healthcare or how we should do politics or big pharma or big oil or you, anything that divides, pick anything that divides, right? How should we sound? In those conversations should it be bitey hostile critical nasty condemning or should it be kind gracious compassionate and loving 
It doesn't mean that we can't have positions and have ideas, but the tone in which we communicate those and the heart by which we are to have kind of engaging into that is to be this idea of that people know, man, my goal is that you would be loved even in this. I think it's important even here because we have diversity of opinion on these topics. Right? We're going to have some people like, CRT is rhetoric machine. If we can't get the, all the other stuff, it's not going to come together. Right? Like I said, light and darkness is a real battle. But the way it's engaged in is not to sound hateful or spiteful or fearful. But it's to mean, I care about you. How, how do I make an investment into you so that you know I love you? Even if we differ, you know. You know I love you. Right? That is what makes the difference. And see, what I love about Jesus is he says, you know, here's the deal. The world is going to hate you. I said, that's true. And he goes, and you know what they, you do when they hate you? You meet it with love. You meet it with love. I think sometimes we're too tempted to kind of meet hate with hate. Defensiveness with defensiveness. Bite with bite, you know? Like tooth for tooth. We'd all love to go back to the Old Testament th- for a little while, you know? But she's like, no, I'm telling you now, turn the other cheek, because that, that's shocking. That's judo move in the world, right? And so that's the way we want to be. And in this, we want to remember that um, our enemy, not people. Not people. And I think this is really, really important. Because we want to be thinking in terms of my enemy in our society is not a liberal school board. My enemy in this society is not the neo-Nazi. My enemy in this society is not the criminal, is not the person that struggles with drug abuse down in downtown Seattle. My enemy is not this politician or that spokesperson or this actor or this lobbyist or whatever. Those aren't my enemies. Those are the people I get to be called to love. I do have an enemy. You know what he loves? He loves hate. Our enemy loves hate. He wants us to hate people. He wants us to be fearful of people. He wants us to cut off people. He wants us to judge people. He wants us to condemn people. He wants us to write them off and chew them out. He loves hate. You know what he hates? Love. Because he knows that pushes back the darkness. He knows that God is love, and when God's people live in love, they live in God. That's what John says in chapter 4. And the more we live in God and we live in love, the more it pushes back the darkness and it brings forth the light. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I feel like winding through what we just did was like winding through John's kind of um, non-linear approach. You know, that he's very repetitive and very cyclical and tapping into a lot of things and simple but hard-to-do ways. And I know that this idea of love in our world is hard. I know it's especially hard in our own culture where self-preservation is at the core of some of our deepest ideals. And so help us to navigate what this looks like for each one of us. I don't know how this is applied in everybody's life individually. I just know that it's a priority that you have for us collectively. Help us to do that in here so that we can transport it out there so that people are touched by you, so that we represent you well and how you are coming to change everything. Now, there may be some in here in the room this morning or watching online where you go, man, I, I don't follow Jesus. I, I haven't been a part of this 
this pioneering effort to love this world well, but I want to be a part. I know that God loves me, and I sense a love for him, and I want to follow him for the first time in my life in a way that I never have before. If that is what you sense, man, you just simply go right now in your prayers, in your mind, quietly, and you say, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. I thank you that you came to to move me from death to life, from darkness to light, from air to truth, so that I could be changed by your love, so I could love well. Forgive me of my sins. Bring me into your love. May I love like you love. You make that your prayer, with the words that you have, with what you know even today, he hears you, receives you, and brings you into his family. If you make that your prayer today, we would love to know. There'll be a number on the screen when you open your eyes here. There's also a tile on our app you could tap and say, man, I made that decision to follow Jesus. We'd love to know if you did that. Jesus, for all of us, help us to leave this place and love well at Safeway, at Extapa, when we go to Redmond, when we go to work tomorrow, when we're helping at the PTA or taking our kids to school. May we be your change agents and difference makers in a spirit of love. We know everything depends on it. Everything does. Help us to be your light and your good name. Amen.